0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be doing a movie review of the movie Blade Runner, the 1982 classic. And then we're going to be taking some themes, some concepts, uh, what what we learned from this movie, and we're going to try to apply it to the Bible. What does it mean for human beings to have value? What does it mean for human beings to be made in the image of God? Can this movie and similar literature and fictional movies, uh, TV is stories, can they teach us anything about the value of human life? Can they, can they give us a sense of what it means to be made in the image of God? So, Blade Runner, 1982. This is a classic movie. This is a cyberpunk movie, one of the first of its kind. It kind of borrowed a lot of elements from the old Metropolis movie. If you've ever seen the black and white movie, and it was made in Germany before World War II, and it just features this almost a dystopian future. this this world after everything has fallen apart. And you got the haves and the have nots. And Blade Runner picks up on these types of themes that we see in these, this earlier movie. It takes a lot of the architecture that you find in Metropolis. It takes, takes kind of this uh, classism where anyone in Blade Runner, their goal is to get off world. Off world is where all the rich people go. Off world is where all the luxury sits. And on Earth, everything's overpopulated, everything's crowded, it's uh, very bleak. You see a lot of fog scenes, you see a lot of uh, buildings that are just rising to the fog out of nowhere. There's only a few cars flying around, but every time you get street level, it's very populated, very urban, very. you, you don't feel very secure in the, these uh, areas. And Blade Runner is magnificent at its visuals. Uh, I would say Ridley Scott is one of my favorite directors for just, just how he gets the camera to operate, the, the, sh- the shots that he gets, and the, and the scenes that he gets, and the plots that he puts forth. And Blade Runner is no exception. This is, this is the classic movie that everyone looks to as, as the defining movie in sci-fi, more so than I would say even Star Wars. Star Wars is kind of amateurish when you, when you compare it to Blade Runner. So the, the concept of Blade Runner, the, the background plot is that there have been synthetics designed. These, these replicants is what they're called. These robots who look like humans, act like humans, are indistinguishable from humans, but these things are tasked with doing jobs that human beings would not be able to do normally. The hard labor. Wars, for example. So you have even pleasure bots. Of course, this movie does not explore the sex industry quite as much as the, the latest Blade Runner release, the Blade Runner 1949, but this movie nonetheless has these, these pleasure models, these robots. Look at this, as I'm talking, if you're watching the YouTube version of this, we're, we're rolling the film and it starts off with these beautiful visuals of this, this city and you get all these uh, shots of fire shooting up and flying cars in the midst of it, just a sea of light. It's these beautiful shots like this that really define the movie, just explosions everywhere. But, now moving on, uh, we are introduced pretty quickly to this scene where there's an interviewer and an, an interviewee. And the purpose of this scene is for this interviewer to try to figure out if the interviewee, if he's actually a robot, or if he's human. Because remember, in this universe, these replicants are so close to human beings that there's, there's no real distinguishing factors. And so what these uh, Blade Runners is what they're called, these people who are designed to hunt down these robots and figure out where, where these robots exist on Earth, they, they have to use these, uh, these tests in order to get physical responses. They have to use tests to see See how, if if these robots react in a human-like way or not. And then, of course, if they do detect that this is a, a replicant or a synthetic uh, a, a android, per se, uh, they go ahead and, quote-unquote, retire it. They kill it. Because the human population on Earth, they're afraid of these things. Because these things have been shown previously to have rebelled against humankind, killed human beings. And... And that, that's one of the interesting topics that this movie explores. So if these replicants exist, if they're able to comprehend their own existence, their own mortality, their own enslavement, and they're able to rise up against their oppressors, what rights do they have to do that? Do they feel, do, do, they, do they have the right for, to uh, control themselves, or do they have to go along with the slave labor? Are they destined to do what they've been programmed to do, and do they have any self-worth? The entire film, the entire premise that these Blade Runners operate under is that replicants have no rights. Replicants are just robots. Replicants you could kill at will. And just even the euphemism retiring for killing one of these things is is purposeful in this movie. It, it's, it signals to the user, the watcher, that that these things are just being viewed as disposable objects and this concept the film wrestles with throughout so in this first opening scene we see this guy he's being interviewed and he seems like just an average joe he's he's a guy who who's just a normal worker and he's being interviewed by this uh, suit type who who we we see him as kind of uh, a little high and mighty for himself and he's 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 trying to get a an emotional response. So he t- he talks about the whole turtle test. You you see a turtle in the desert. It's you turn it over. Why do you do it? And the the guy he's confused. He's like I try to help the robot. No, I can't do that. The interviewer says you don't do that. You flipped them over. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And he keeps trying to rile this guy up. And he's watching the eyes closely to see if there's any reaction an emotional response to these questions and from that emotional response he could try to figure out if this guy is human or if he's synthetic because if he's a replicant he's going to be right react in different ways he's he's not going to have the full range of human experience again another theme that this movie wrestles with do our experiences do our life experiences do those define us there there's a critical scene that we're going to get to later where the replicant, he, he's, he's basically telling a human being that he's lived longer and had more unique experiences uh, than any human ever has. And uh, all those things are going to be dying with him. It's just like if a human being's going to die, all their thoughts, all their passions, everything about them dies with them. So we just saw that in this scene that this guy turns out to be a replicant. He pulls out a gun and he shoots this Blade Runner. We don't know he's a Blade Runner yet. We kind of get the details of that later. The cops then are forced to pull in an older, retired Blade Runner in order to fulfill this job. And we are then introduced to the Harrison Ford character, Deckard. We cut over from the interview scene and we get a lot of these uh, beautiful splashes again. You see all sorts of advertisements, a sea of lights, you got uh, airships flying with spotlights. It's just a the perfect cyberpunk environment. And the latest movie, the, the sequel, does this as well. It does it uh, even better, I would say, because they have more access to funds, technology, better costume and set designers. But still, even so, this 1982 Blade Runner holds the, holds the test of time. It could be released in the modern day and people wouldn't, wouldn't be able to tell that it's a 1982 movie. It's, it's that good. The visuals are that advanced for the times. The, the shots are stunning. Just look at this these, uh, these tubes. Uh, th- this is all done with miniatures, by the way. There, there's, there's a team trying to do an amateur version of Blade Runner, just trying to replicate the use of miniatures to get these same effects. But the cops, since they need a new Blade Runner, they go find this retired individual named Deckard. He's approached by the actor Edward James Omos. You might remember James Omos from from the TV miniseries Battlestar Galactica, which explores a lot of the same themes that Blade Runner explores about the value of uh, synths, uh, the value of replicants, the value of uh, Cylons, as they're called in Battlestar Galactica, at what point is a human a human? At what point do emotions, uh, experiences, uh, self-worth, self-understanding, yourself, self-awareness, does that make one human being? What what makes someone worthy of value, and uh, something not worthy of value? That's that, those those are the primary themes in these types of movies. So this individual, uh, Deckard, he's brought in, uh, kind of against his will. He doesn't want to be doing this but he's put on this project to hunt down these rogue uh replicants. These these people who have risen up on one of the colonies on which they were they were workers and they rose up, killed a bunch of human beings. They they took a ship and they came to earth. And everyone's perplexed about this. Why? Why would why would these uh these robots would why would they rise up against the people who are enslaving them and why would they then return to earth but as they're talking about this as they're considering these details they they kind of answer their own question because the very next conversation in the police station is about uh, who these synths are who these replicants are what, what are their inception dates? And then the critical piece of information is dropped on us, that these robots only have a four-year lifespan. After these four years, they're just kind of t- kind of shut down and die because the original programmers understood that these uh, replicants would be gaining their own emotions. They'll becoming self-aware. And with their, just their brute strength and, and how long they could survive and the, the conditions they could survive under, human beings would not stand a chance against an uh, entire army of these replicants running around. And so they were hard programmed in with this four-year lifespan. And so it's all coming together. Um, the people, the audience, we, we see into what uh, the characters on screen don't. We're able to put the pieces together before they do. These replicants, they want a longer life. They don't want to die after four years. And, uh, you know, who wants to die? And what would you do as a human being? What would you do to extend your lifespan? Would you, would you go and find your makers? Would you go and question them and try to figure out uh, what makes you you? And how does your body function? And is there any way to extend my, your lifespan uh, over and against what it's hard programmed for. These are the questions. These are the questions. This is what makes Blade Runner so unique. And one thing I like about this scene is it keeps dropping hints. It, 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 uh, it foreshadows. It shows that Edward James almost character uh, making origami shapes. This is This is a key feature of his character. It kind of tells you where he's been and what he knows. And it plays into a question that we're going to be exploring throughout this movie. How does Deckard know that he's not a robot? How do you know you're not a robot? How do I know I'm not a robot? How do I know my memories are legitimate? How do you know your memories are legitimate? How do do you know anything is real? Is it pictures? Well, it can't be pictures because Deckard, he goes to this uh, individual who shot the other Blade Runner. He goes to his apartment and they discover these photographs. And these are are plants. These are photographs that... uh, these synthetics, these replicants, they've had memories injected into their bodies and they remember these things, but they're fake. And there's a very telling scene in which the head replicant says to, to this other one, he says, go get the pictures that you really value. Go grab your precious photographs. Why are they precious? How are they precious to a robot? This This guy has legitimate concerns. He has this emotional attachment to these pictures, even though he knows they're fake, even though he knows that they don't depict him in reality. And there's pictures I think of him and some kids, and uh, they're not real. They're not real, but he still values them enough to risk his life to go and retrieve these photos. All right, so I quick fast forwarded it to this scene so we could kind of get an overview of the picture scene. I think it's, it's pretty critical. He pulls these pictures out of the drawer and there's one picture of uh, this guy with kids and a family. And these memories have been implanted into this replicant and he feels they're real. And even after figuring out that they're not real, he still values these pictures. I'm going to unmute this real quick so that we could hear this interaction with the head replicant just just look at this scene and we get from the scene we see the hand cringing like that that tells us he's dying he's he's experiencing uh conceptions of his own mortality and that that theme runs through this these these synths are dying these replicants are dying let's hear this did you get your precious photos You, you kind of see their emotions in their face. He, he values these photos. He, he loves them, even though he knows they're fake. And I had an interesting conversation with my wife one day very early in our marriage, uh, How would we react if we found out that our entire world was fake? We found out that our kids were figments of our imagination or we found out that they were they were just robots or we, or we found out, you know, something that just upended just the way reality, uh, we, we conceive reality that our kids are not real. Do we still value our own kids? Our, the kids that we grew up grew up with, uh, we, we, we taught them how to speak. We changed their diapers. We've just interacted with them our entire life. And we figure out their figments of our imagination. Different people are going to respond differently. And this movie explores that. You know, my wife said, I would still value them, even if I knew they were fake. They're figments of my imagination. They weren't real human beings, and I was like, well, you know, maybe I might value them somewhat, but not more than like a computer game. I, my, my knowledge that they're not real would affect me uh, in a different way. It, it, it would, it would tell me it's like, what am I doing using my time on these things that aren't. They're just not real. What value is it to me? My wife, completely different. Different people react in different ways. And this movie, to its own credit, explores these diversity of perspectives. And they do it among the replicants. And it it signals to the audience, it signals to us that these things react and respond in different ways based on their own thoughts that they could construct themselves. They're, they're like human beings. They're not, they're not just uh, all the same thing. They're, they are their own individuals based on their life experiences and how they perceive reality. It's, and it, it's very humanizing. The, this movie does a lot of things to humanize these replicants. This, this scene right here we're looking at where he puts his hand in the icy water, that's not a humanizing scene. But it kind of shows us his experimentation with the world. He's testing new things out he's learning information they're going around and they're trying to source they're trying to source the individual who could control their lifespan so they they're on a detective quest to extend their own life And yeah, we lose a little bit of our empathy for them as they kill certain individuals through their quest. The people that they mostly target are they, they they target the cops and they target their designers the people who have, made them who they are and we might be able to empathize with that these are the people who designed them to die these are the people who designed them to be enslaved and so they might have a lot of uh apathy towards their well-being they, they might not care if those individuals die. they might actually want those people dead because of the life that was brought upon them they dislike their creator where where have we heard that before we'll, we'll highlight a scene a little bit later in this movie that explores this hatred of the creator. But I'm going to rewind the movie just a little bit because there's a great scene where Harrison Ford, he goes to the Tyrell Corporation and Tyrell Corporation is the corporation that has created all these replicants. They're, They're the main producer and they've experimented and came up with uh, this latest generation replicant. And it's uh, in this character that is introduced to us as Rachel. And even, even Deckard, he's a seasoned Blade Runner who has hunted down all these replicants. Because she's such a late generation model, he even, even he can't figure out that she is a replicant without extensive testing. And then he finally is able to figure it out and we empathize with her because she becomes very quickly privy to the fact that she is a replicant which she did not know before she was under the illusion she was an actual human being she has these memories of being a kid of uh, seeing a spider outside her window and these memories are implants because Deckard he's privy to them he was told about her memories he's able to recite to her her own memories as she's trying to convince him that her memories are real that she's a real live human being and he's demonstrating to her that there's no way to tell even the memories that we hold most dear even the ones that uh, we identify with they they're all they could be implants we don't know how they've been generated our entire reality can be shattered from uh, outside of us. In the blink of an eye, when we find out everything we know, known as true, is actually indeed false. This is a life-changing event and we really empathize with her at that point. She becomes sad. Uh, She becomes, uh, she stops showing up for work, in fact. She doesn't want to go to work. She's, what value does she have? She's, she's, She's now just a robot. She's not a human being. Her value has just uh, uh, become obsolete. And Deckard, throughout this, to his credit, he uh, begins to—I don't know if you could say love her—but he he empathizes with her and he starts to care for her and he feels for her. And this is all this is all within uh, the scope of him trying to figure out. If he himself is a replicant, he doesn't know. He's got these pictures, and uh, he looks at these pictures, and he's like, well, these are my old pictures from my family. But then he sees her. He sees that she has her own pictures, and he sees that she has her own memories, and that really casts the spotlight back on himself. If she doesn't know that she's a replicant, then he might know not know that he is a replicant also. How does any of us know what is real and what is false? Anything can be a plant. Our memories could be inaccurate. Everything that we know could be pulled out from underneath us at any time. So these are reasons I really love this movie. Just the themes that they explore, just, just the interesting perspectives. And it's a great thought experiment, even for our own lives. What if everything around us wasn't real? And I was just at the Thomas J. Ord lecture series and one of the psychiatrists who were interviewed, he pointed out this this thought experiment that he gives to his patients sometimes. What if you found out tomorrow, maybe, maybe there is a God, you find out there is a God, but there's no heaven or hell. Once you're dead, you're gone and nothing else changes. And he said a lot of their responses was uh, the desire to care more for the earth, which I... <laughs> i guess i guess if that's his experience i don't know i don't know maybe maybe his uh his client base self-selects and so it might not be a typical response of the general population but my response to that if there's no heaven or hell it's not going to be to take care of the earth i'm going to tell you that it's not going to be to take care of the earth maybe it would be more like uh eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die right that's a that's a biblical concept but, yeah, just just everything that this this movie points to us and, and makes us grapple with, all, all these different uh, scenarios, themes, all at the same time, and question questions that we pull into the real world in our own life. What makes us have value? Now, do these replicants, do they have value? Is it their emotions? Is that what makes them value? How about their indistinguishability between themselves and human beings. If you can't tell what is a human and what is not a human, how do you, How can you say that it's not a human, right? Is there something within us that makes us human, makes us special, gives us value that just making an exact copy of a human being, just, just machining it, putting it together as a machine, would that be a human being? Would that individual have a soul and and blade runner this original blade runner in 1982 doesn't use the word soul not not that i remember but the new one does the sequel does and they they throw it in the guy's face he's they say you don't have a soul you replicant the the head lady says that to to her blade runner who goes out and hunts down the replicants and in the new blade runner of course their blade runner is a, a replicant himself that's made obvious very very early in the movie, and uh, they kind of played their cards maybe too fast. But they're trying to explore a movie with a perspective from someone who knew that they are a replicant already to try to deal with uh, the emotional fallout from from living the, their their perspective. In this movie, you get a perspective of someone who is human. Harrison Ford, in his interviews, he says that Deckard is a human. And uh, Ridley Scott says he's not. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with Harrison Ford because it makes it a better movie that, uh, that Harrison Ford is a human, that Deckard is a human because it, it relates a lot more to you and I about uh, how we view the world and, and things that we should think about. And uh, the new movie, the guy could be a synth. Yeah, the guy could be a replicant and that works. That works for that movie's aesthetics. That works for that movie's themes. But it doesn't really quite work as well for this movie. So I'm going to choose to side with Harrison and Ford on that. So now I fast-forwarded to a chase scene. You get the the claustrophobia again. You got people everywhere. You got people that you're bumping into. Everyone's living their own lives. They all got their different outfits on, uh, different unique styles. You got some Asian aesthetics. You got some some looks like uh, you know hats and goggles going on that are not quite Asian. You got interesting s- symbols. It's it's like like a hodgepodge of. All different cultures uh, just mashed into one massive block of people. That's, uh, I love these, these aesthetics in these cyberpunk movies that are like this. Just the detail that goes into these scenes. But he's chasing her down, and he goes ahead and finds her out and shoots her dead. And who is sitting there but uh, the Leon character, the replicant that we met in the beginning. He sees his friend die, and we see his reaction to that. And his face is a shock. Let's, let's see if we can't get to that scene real quick. So here she get, gets shot through a window. Uh, beautiful scene going on there. And Leon's sitting there with his, his eyes. He's in shock. His friend has died. And you see that throughout this movie. Every time another replicant dies, the shock and horror on the surviving replicants. These are their friends. These are their buddies, the people who have the common goals. They're, they're all trying to achieve the same thing, is uh, living longer. And death, mortality, really affects them on an emotional level. And <laughs> look at this. Look at this, this scene uh, where Harrison Ford then comes face-to-face with this robot. This robot, this uh, replicant, they're, they're superhumans. This is why human beings fear them, because these people can do what human beings can't. They're a lot stronger, a lot faster. They don't have to weather the elements as much. They, we don't know. Do they eat? Maybe they eat. Maybe they don't. Not quite talked about. But all around, they're like a superhuman, and humans can't compete on any level. And the human beings react in terror and they try to destroy these things. They try to enslave these things and use these things. And these things ha- take on a life of their own where they're fighting for their own survival. It's hard not to empathize on some level with the replicants in this movie, even though even though the replicants do do bad things, which which distance themselves from the audience at times. They're, they kill likable characters and. Uh, Maybe for plot reasons that the, these certain characters are killed to move the plot ahead. But, but still, we, we feel for them. We understand their plight. Yeah, sorry to jump around. We're going to go back to the interview scene in which he first encounters this Rachel character. And we start out with these stunning scenes of uh, clear skies. Very, very light traffic in the sky. The, the sky and these airships. Are contrasted with the busy streets below down below is the hustle bustle the people the groups of masses that that bump into each other and smash into each other as they're weaving and trying to get through their daily lives and up in the air it's clear we get these beautiful scenes of just just nothingness and I think this is very purposeful and then you go into these buildings of these rich individuals the Tyrell corporation who makes these replicants and again it is empty it's contrasting uh, the su- uber rich, the people who can afford space and the people who can't afford space, the people who are always bumping into each other. And Deckard's own ap- apartment is fairly small, probably a pretty expensive uh, apartment if you were in modern day New York and had an apartment that size. So he, he might do pretty well for himself within this this universe. A lot of people probably don't live like that. But we, we get the contrast. We understand how one segment of the population lives in this world, and how the other lives. This interview with uh, the Rachel replicant is very interesting. She throws back questions at him. She she exhibits characteristics that he hasn't encountered before. She asks him questions and engages with him in a way to question. You know, uh, how do you know that you're not a replicant? She doesn't say it in this scene, but she says it in another scene. Have you ever done the test on yourself? She's questioning him. How does he know he's not a replicant? He might be in the same boat she is. Because she didn't know she was a replicant before these tests, maybe he as well will find out something stunning that's going to shake his foundations. Everything he believed to be true is going to be found false. But she asks him, have you accidentally ever expired or retired a human being. Have you ever done that? Because uh since, since replicants are so close to human beings, it's hard to tell the difference. You don't know who you're shooting. You're shooting it could be a person there. It could be a person. And that tells us as the audience that signals to us that there's no practical difference in this universe between the replicants and the human beings. Just the replicants are or might might be stronger, have higher tolerances. But they're indistinguishable. We don't know. You can't tell. So what is it then? If you can't tell the difference between a human being and a replicant, how do you know there's a value differential as well? How how can a replicant not have the same value as a human being if they're indistinguishable? We are introduced fairly early in the movie to this character known as Pris. We saw her on the screen in uh, the police briefing. She is one of the replicants who have escaped. She's a pleasure model. She uses her body to manipulate men to get what she wants. And she seeks out this lead designer and uh, presents herself as a homeless runaway. And he very quickly spots that she is a replicant. She is a robot of his own design and he's very impressed about how late of model she is but she tries to manip- manipulate this individual into giving her access to the lead Tyrell CEO i think the guy's name is in fact Tyrell he he's he's the head of the company the person who designed them with this fail safe this four year time frame that's going to kill them and she's able to play on his emotions he's got a rare disease he doesn't have long for this world. He's going to die young. He understands how they feel. They are going to die young. He is going to die young. And they play to that. They say, you know, we're like you. You know, we, you know how we feel. We're going to die. You're going to die. Please help us. And she uses her feminine wiles. They use persuasion in order to manipulate this guy to get what they want. We're now moving to a scene in which the lead replicant, he enters the apartment where Pris is with the lead designer. And they both together work to manipulate him. And we're going to listen to this scene. We're going to see how it plays out. And uh, th- there's a very human moment when they try to talk to each other about the, the, the replicants who have died and they can't show that on the face value they need to hide it from this uh, lead designer so that he's not in on their plans he doesn't know their motivations what's making them tick their any any of uh their inclinations for revenge what they're dealing with and they kind of force them out of the room so i'm going to go hit play on this and uh we're going to watch this scene unfold So here, the two individuals are kissing. That's the guy, he makes up an excuse to, to leave the room. He walks out of the room, and their happy demeanor changes almost instantly to sadness. Well? Because, <laughs> just watch. Leon. What's going on? I... there's only two of us now. Go ahead and hit mute. So these these replicants, they have to deal with this impending death, the death of their friends and their own mortality. And you you've seen his hand. We've we've shown the scene of his hand, hand uh, seizing up, his body shutting down as his expiration dates coming due. And uh, they have to manipulate this guy. There there's no hope left, and that's uh, it's their only chance. And so you see they're... they're their two-faced attitude where they present themselves one way to him and and right in front of his face and then in a different way when he's not around through use of manipulation they get the lead designer to bring him to the penthouse suite of the Tyrell at the at the top bunk and almost instantly Tyrell identifies the the replicant as his own creation and he, he, he treats them in an academic way. This individual, it, good writers write people as individuals. They have their own motivations, their own quirks, their own desires. And this Tyrell guy, his MO is that he's the intellectual type. He doesn't understand common sense. He doesn't understand how to interact with individuals. And he tries to speak frankly and academically towards this replicant without consideration of the ramifications and it really doesn't play out very well for him in the end because what does the replicant want he wants his life extended and tyrell tries to very calmly and academically explain no this is hard-coded the process is started there there's no fix we've tried these various fixes uh you're suggesting fixes to me and uh, we've, we understand those fixes, we've tried those fixes, and those fixes didn't work. So what would someone who is street-savvy do? They would probably say, oh, yeah, th- that's a great idea. Uh, let's go try that on you and extend your life. That way, you know, you give that guy hope, you could get them out of your apartment, and you're no longer in danger of any retaliation. Telling someone that they will die and it is your fault is not a very good strategy for prolonging your own life. And and it's a quirk. It's a it's it's a character quirk. I I love it when writers they write different individuals, different people. It's not every single character is the voice of the author. And and let's let's hear this scene out. What seems to be the problem? Death. Death. Well, I'm afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction. You... I want more life, Father. The facts of life. You were made as well as we could make you. But not to last. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things, also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven. So Roy, the replicant, he goes on to kill his creator. There's this murder scene. I'm going to pause it so that there's not the graphic scene, I guess, on on the YouTube channel. But he kills his own creator because the creator created him with design flaws. He created him, and the the process is irreversible. And this might might resonate with us, that uh, what we've done is irreversible. The lives we lived are irreversible. It's done away with. There's no undoing what has been done. And in that sense, we understand where he is coming from. And as a result of his creator creating him with these flaws and him hating his own creator for it, he commits deicide, the killing of a god. And of course, that would be Tyrell in this situation. Not a a literal god, but uh, just uh, in a technical sense, I guess. But from this he learns about his own mortality his body is shutting down and there's no reverse for this so what's there left to do is uh regroup with uh his his girl the the last remaining replicant of his party and pretty much wait for death but deckard is on scene i'm gonna hit play here we're gonna kind of watch this scene a little play out there's a body that's reported to Deckard and this is the body of that lead designer And this is why I said earlier that this might be a plot thing that this individual is killed because his dead body leads them to this apartment where these replicants are and we proceed to the final battle in which Deckard tries to finish off these replicants The irony is the irony is that these people were gonna die automatically anyway without his intervention in the first place so what's he doing this is a job he didn't even want to do and he's going and performing this pointless task not really doing anything but uh <laughs> just carrying out pointless activities he kills press fairly easily there's this uh, little fight scene where she dances around and he just kind of shoots her maybe kind of like the indiana jones scene where he shoots that uh, guy with the sword it's uh just look at look at the scene here the, the lighting the lighting always in these cyberpunk movies are very dynamic you got a lot of darks and a lot of light beams uh, shining through highlights and silhouettes i really like the aesthetics of this movie as i've already described to you the, the new movie as well and some beautiful beautiful shots i'm gonna probably try to throw maybe one or two on the screen so that the audience gets an idea of what the new movie is like but he's walking through this building, he doesn't know what's real, what's not, what's a robot, what's a threat. And he's dealing with these, uh, these superhumans. And uh, himself, he's only got human-level capabilities. He doesn't know if he's a synth or not. But if he was a synth, he's, he's just a human synth. The one that has the same type of uh, reflexes, the same type of weaknesses that human beings do. He kills Priss. And just in time for Roy, the head replicant, to arrive on scene and find the dead body of his last love in this life, which sends him into a rage. And we see this fight scene where Roy chases him all through, all through the building, up and down, and uh, breaks his hand, has chances to kill Deckard, but uh, refrains from doing that. What is that telling us? That he, he's not trying to kill Deckard, he's trying to play with him. What's he trying to do with him? What, what's his purpose in all of this? And we see the replicants, his hand, his hand cringing and uh, breaking, his body shutting down and he knows it. He's on the verge of death. And who's his last person to confide in? It is Deckard, his enemy, the person who wants him dead. So I'm going to fast forward to the scene on the roof. And uh, the replicant actually saves Deckard from falling off the roof. And he does it with uh, a nail in his hand. Is that uh, Christological symbolic imagery. He shoves the nail in his hand to try to restart his hand. His hand is dying down, and he wants to give it some stimulation so it still works. And this nail he uses to plunge into Deckard's hand. Both hands are connected by this nail as he pulls them up from the abyss might have another more symbolic imagery maybe their intertwined fates maybe their just their commonalities that both individuals kind of understand each other want the same thing their their hands are combined through this nail Uh, i can't quite get to the scene but he pulls them up onto the roof and we have what is what i consider one of the best scenes in cinematic history in which Roy the replicant tries to explain to Deckard just his thought process before he finally dies just 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 things that that go along with this mortality that he's been facing for for his life throughout this entire movie he's watched his friends die and he knows that death is coming for him as well we got the nail scene there if you're watching on YouTube and he just sits down He just sits down in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. (laughs) So we see his emotions there. You're you're the fear that you're experiencing. That's what it feels like to be a slave. That's why we rebelled. That's why we did what we wanted. That what, what we did we didn't do it because we were bad people but because we were enslaved we had legitimate reasons for our actions he gets pulled up he gets sits down and this scene (laughs) happens on fire off the shoulder of Orion I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate all those moments will be lost in time like tears time to die phrase is a reference to earlier when Leon the replicant attacked Deckard and said time to die in this sense in this context he's referring to himself his body's shutting down he's dying we see this dove fly away symbolizing perhaps his soul ascending to heaven but this this monologue uh, this uh, beautifully beautifully constructed was uh if if you look at what the actor himself said about this is is impromptu he he constructed it himself that our memories uh, disappear like tears in the rain and that's a very good imagery especially for this scene in which it's just pouring rain and it doesn't matter if you're crying your tears are no different than they're indistinguishable from from just this onslaught of rain that just washes it all away he's saying i've experienced these things i've had these amazing experiences that no one else has had and all these things are just going to disappear with my death and as human beings we could really relate to this all our experiences everything we've lived up to for till this moment and then and then we die we die i always think about that in in war films you're watching a war film and uh, war films of course based on reality but all these individuals who go out to war they've lived their entire lives uh 20 30 years of their lives up to that moment just to be shot and to die in battle it's, it's tragic it's a waste all their life experiences all their loves all their joys everything that they held dear their family their relationships it's all gone in this one senseless act and death is very senseless one of the things this movie tries to do is have us wrestle with the concept of death and dying and what it means to die and our own mortality through the lens, of course, of these replicants and Deckard himself. This last scene we're going to cover, uh, we learned that the Edward James almost character was at Deckard's apartment but chose not to kill the Rachel replicant and allowed them to escape. He showed some humanity and there might be there might be a clue for the Deckard is a synth because the the last origami shape is a unicorn and that's what Deckard was dreaming about earlier in the movie and so those who say that he is a replicant say says that that's an implanted memory that's an implanted dream and the Edward James almost character is aware of this dream and tries to signal that to Deckard Uh, I think it's a stretch. I'm going to still go with the Deckard is human. It makes the movie much better. The original uh, cinematic release of this movie, Blade Runner, had this terrible, terrible monologue that the movie ended with, and they used it to try to please the audience. So if you're you're trying to watch this movie, just skip that. If you ever see that, just start to play. The monologue's terrible. And you can really tell in Harrison Ford's voice that he was forced into this by studio executives. He did not want to do this scene, and he was just kind of forced into it. But uh, I love this movie. A lot of good themes. It works together very well. And uh, there's a lot of references. You have to watch for those small details to fully understand everything that's going on. A cursory viewing of this, you might think this is just a robot's, Versus human movies without deeper implications, but you'd be missing a lot of the plot. You'd be missing a lot of the details of this movie. We reach Genesis one twenty six, and then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God makes man in his image. This is contrary to what the Calvinists say, that man in no way has any relationship to God, that he can't relate, has nothing in common because that would degrade who God is, that would degrade God's uh, divinity. Uh, No, it's nothing like that. Human beings are made in God's image. So what happens when someone made in God's image makes something, a robot, a synthetic, a replicant in their own image? Can we create something with value because of our relationship to God? Can we take that value and put it on our own creations? And, and probably, probably the answer is yes, in a sense. If we were able to make beings who had self-awareness and to make moral choices. Remember, man's eyes are enlightened in the garden of evil. Uh, they finally understand good from evil and there's a childlike awakening that we experience in Genesis 3 in which uh, we, Adam and Eve move from a childlike state of ignorant bliss. Not that they couldn't sin per se, just that they, when they did something, it'd be like a, a baby crying for its mom or being selfish or or uh, my, my own baby uh, trying to throw my hands off my own wife because she wants mom all to herself. You know, she's just doing this stuff in ignorance. is not not like a real sin. It's it. There's there's no contemplation. There's no understanding that goes along with these actions. And Adam and Eve are moved from that state into a state of total awareness, brought into reality. And if we built robots who were able to uh, completely mimic our understanding, completely mimic our our freedom, our volition, our thoughts, our emotions—being able to, to be a human being, indistinguishable from a human being. Yeah, probably, probably that that robot in that case would uh, get some value, would be able to, to take a little bit of uh, God's image to onto themselves. But getting to that state is the problem. There's something called the Turing test in which. Different computers are trying to, trying to be programmed, and the goal of the tiering test is to get that program to so thoroughly replicate a human interaction that's indistinguishable from the real human being. And that's exactly what Blade Runner is about, is uh, trying to create something so indistinguishable that's able to pass a test. The, the test that they administer is a form of tiering test. How would a human being react to these emotionally leading questions? You also get a little bit of that in the, the latest Blade Runner sequel, where they try to get uh, synthetics, get these replicants to to flash emotions. They, they try to see if they, they've moved off their baseline, if they're becoming self-aware, if they're starting to think on their own, and they do it through these rapid rapid questions, rapid word response exercises to see if how that individual reacts, if he reacts in a stoic way or if he reacts with a lot of thought behind those actions. That's their test. All right, this this review has gone long and we didn't talk quite as much about being made in God's image as I would have liked. And maybe we'll, we'll probably have to dedicate a podcast just directly to that and the various views of of what specifically that means but uh, i really like talking about the themes that blade runner brings up the questions what what gives us value Uh, can other things gain that value what makes a person a person do we know ourselves do we know our own lives our own thoughts our own life experiences how would we react if we found out our entire world was fake, everything we knew was a lie. Yeah. That's it's a great thought experiment. But if you have any questions or comments, send that to God is open. Thank you for listening.